we each have to find what ways we're comfortable networking. For some, it might be online. For others, it might be large groups. For others, it might be one-on-one informational sessions. I mean, there's a number of different ways to do it, but I think you have to find what's comfortable for you so that you do it because this is how you're going to open doors. And it's not just for now. It's got to be for a lifetime. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. My guest on this episode is Dr. Dawn Graham. Let's skip over her job title for a moment because, as you'll hear her point out, that's not the most important thing. And it really doesn't capture who she is. I'll make this simple for you. Dr. Dawn Graham is simply a genius when it comes to networking and job searching. No matter where you are in your career, you have to listen to the wisdom that she brings to the table. Whether you're fresh out of college looking for a job, a professional looking for a new opportunity, or if you're looking to switch careers, or even if you're an executive looking to hire, Dr. Dawn has all the tools and knowledge you're going to need in order to be successful. And by the way, yes, she's qualified for this. She's the director of the executive MBA program at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the host of Dr. Dawn on Careers on SiriusXM. You're about to get information that you can't even believe you're able to obtain for free. This stuff is pure gold. So let's stop talking about it and get right into it. Your outlook on your professional life is about to get completely renewed. I know you'll enjoy my highly engaging conversation with Dr. Dawn Graham. Dawn Graham, welcome to the show. Actually, are you Dr. Dawn Graham or what is it that you prefer to go by? I am totally fine with Dawn. The doctor part cost me a lot of money and a lot of time, so it's nice to get it mentioned now and again. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. If I, Man, if I had a, a PhD, I would probably get that tattooed on my forehead. I'd be so proud. <laughs> I have no money left after getting yeah. a PhD <laughs> yeah. to get uh, a tattoo. All right. So, you know, maybe we'll do a Patreon raise to get that PhD, <laughs> to, you know, or if there's someone listening that does tattoos, we've got your customer. Donna, I am so excited to have you on the show. We have so much to talk about. And I feel that, oh my God, that anyone is listening to this is going to get so much value out of this conversation. This conversation hasn't even happened yet. And I'm that confident that there's going to be tons of takeaways. So no pressure. No pressure. But you're talking about one of my favorite topics, Adam. So it's got to go well. Okay. Well, that's a beautiful thing. How did it become, you know, getting into career changing and also networking? They're like two topics that very much complement each other that I'd really like to focus on today. And I'd love to know kind of where this all began from your perspective. How did you fall into this field? And not only just fall into this field, how did it become such a passion? 
Yeah, I will say that like most people, my career is a series of zigzags. I know that when you look at LinkedIn and resumes, it always looks like this beautiful linear planned career, but most people don't have that. And I think that's important to share right up front. So I didn't go to college saying I'm going to be in career. I didn't even know there was really a career in career. And I'll be honest, as an undergrad, we had four career centers and I had never visited one. I didn't even know it existed. So I somewhat fell into this through a series of unfortunate events. I was part of the Enron Arthur Anderson layoff back in early 2000s. And for those of you who may not remember that, there was a big scandal with Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm, which is where I worked as a recruiter and in training and development. Enron, there was some shredding going on. I won't get into the details. There's a movie if you really want to see it. But within six months... 90,000 people had been laid off. So you have this 100-year-old company that was established, top in the field, and I was doing well. I just finished my master's degree. They had paid for it, and I was getting a promotion, moving to California to take on a new role, and boom, you get a call at 5 o'clock on a Tuesday that your whole team is gone. And yeah, it was kind of shocking And you think, wow, this wasn't what I was expecting. And what I had realized from that, Adam, was I had this brand on my resume, first of all, that was pretty much trash at the time. I can't tell you how many interviews I went on where people were like, did you shred something? And it's like, come on. (laughs) It's not even funny. Um, It's funny now, but not at the time. Plus, uh, I had built up these skills that I was planning to stay at this company. And my network, my entire network, which was internal, was all out on the street looking for a job as well. So Mm. it was pretty much at this time when I said to myself, I never want to be in this situation again. It was a rude awakening to learn that there is no such thing as job security, that even stellar performers can get laid off or furloughed, which I think a lot of people are experiencing right now, maybe for the first time. And that the only security comes from within by building skills that are marketable, a very strong brand, a network. And so even though I had thought up until that point that good work was enough and strong performance and that this company would promote me along, No one saw coming that the fact that this company wouldn't exist in six months. And so that's really when I stepped back and reevaluated my situation and said, I never want to be in this place. And further, I want to help others never have to be in this place. And from there, my career was launched. Wow, the fire was lit. Yeah. It was an inferno. <laughs> it was an explosion. <laughs> yeah. And and if you don't mind, get everybody up to speed with what you're doing now. And by the way, I want to congratulate you on five years. And I'll tell when you're done explaining what you're doing these days, then everyone's going to understand what those five years, that milestone is. So I've been very fortunate. The last um, six years I've spent working as the career director for the executive MBA at Wharton. And I love doing that. I work with some of the greatest business leaders around the world, helping them with their career exploration, individual coaching around resumes, LinkedIn, brand, networking. So all the things I love to do on a daily basis. But I also have a radio show on Sirius XM called Dr. Gone on Careers, which I love doing as well. It's a weekly live call-in show. So people from all around the country call in with their career questions. And it could be any question. And that's been a blast. 
podcast. I've also written a book called Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and See Success, which came out two years ago. And so I'm very passionate about working with career switchers, which I think is completely the wave of the future. And I've also done a TEDx talk and some LinkedIn learning courses with LinkedIn. So I like to keep busy. I love what I do. I think you can tell that. And Mm. I'm always trying to live what I share with people. I'm always trying to grow my skills. I'm always trying to build my brand. And I'm always trying to build my network because I know from 20 years ago, that experience at Arthur Anderson and Enron, that that's something that we all need to keep doing. So I try and really live that through everything I do. Wow. And you do. My mind is spinning right now because there's so many things I want to ask you. There's so many things that I want to talk about. So I'm going to have to just slow my mind down right now and go piecemeal this. So first thing, well, I want to agree with you because you can't rely on anybody. The only thing that you can rely on are your networks. Those people that are every different facet of all the different networks, so important. And what I try to tell people is that when you are doing the best, that's the time that you should be quote unquote networking because that's when you bring the most to the table. That's Mm -hmm. when you're, whether it's financially, you bring the most to the table. Mentally, you bring the most to the table. You're performing. A lot of times it's your health is in a better, you're healthier when you're in that type of situation. So you've got the most to give and give while you can because not only will that kind of like insulate your career because you're going to be giving and probably growing even more and more, but just in case you've kind of, as Harvey McKay says, dug your well before you're thirsty. I can't stress that enough to people. And I've had a couple of interesting experiences just in my career, whether it was when I used to own an executive search firm. I'll never forget the day before Lehman collapsed, I'd actually contacted a guy that he's a pretty big hitter and I had an amazing opportunity and he was so I couldn't believe how rude he was to me but the next day obviously when things you know when things when the, Oops. the yep, <laughs> uh, that he called me as he had never had been so rude just on principle I just couldn't I just couldn't support him and he was perfect for what the role I had but man so many things so let me ask you this there, there's something in your LinkedIn profile well, a lot of things that I thought was really excellent And you wrote, great experience and strong skills won't matter if you can't get in front of the decision makers. Is that your quote? Did you get that from somewhere? That's a Dr. Don Graham quote, yeah. Wow. (laughs) I'm going to use that and you're going to get a lot of footnotes. Do you mind expanding on that? So I'm not really sure. I can't remember the exact name when I came up with that quote, but it's on my website and it's kind of one of my taglines because what I've realized is that, especially working with switchers, the biggest challenge we have is that there's all of these people with phenomenal skills who, for whatever reason, can't get to the right people. And then digging into that, we see that a lot of people are still applying online and using the online system, which maybe 20 years ago when it was novel and not oversaturated like it is now, was a great way to get a job. But now every job that opens gets at least 250 applications, probably more now in the age of COVID. And the fact is that we know applicant tracking systems weed out 75% of resumes before they even reach human eyes. And sometimes for, for silly things like 
the formatting is off or they wanted a PDF and you sent a Word doc. And so here you are thinking, I have this great skill set and they're going to want to interview me, but you're getting kind of lost in the abyss of this system and not even getting to the hiring manager. So I think that's one. Two, what we know is a lot of job ads that are online are not real. And what I mean by that, of course, we've got the, the scams, which are, I have to warn people, really increasing right now. So do be careful. We've also got the companies who already have a pre-identified internal candidate, but have to go through the hoops of posting. So I think we over rely on these online systems and the whole point of switchers and the whole kind of theme of what I coach people to do is go around those systems. Those systems were once maybe helpful, but now they're just an unnecessary hurdle. And we know that companies, especially now, I've been talking with headhunters and people in executive search and recruiters, and companies don't have time to go through 250 resumes. They are trusting their network to bring people in and get people up and started. So I think this goes to what your podcast talks about all the time, is that relationships create the opportunities. And if you're a great person with marketable skills, but you don't have that connection point, chances are you're not going to get as many opportunities as somebody who does, which is why you have to work to build that constantly. Mm. Something else that you say is even if you hate the hiring game, I can teach you how to play to win. (laughs) And (laughs) And I hate the hiring game. I'll tell you, that's why I wrote that. I do hate it. I think it's inefficient. I just, I write for Forbes and I'm just putting together an article about all the silly things companies do to lose great talent and hiring is right up there. I mean, you hear about people getting ghosted or going through this Olympics gymnastics to get even their application done online and all this stuff. And and what they're doing is they're really prohibiting great talent from getting to them. So yeah, I don't like this game. I don't like the fact that there's all these obstacles to the matching of great people with great work, but but there are. So you and I know that thankfully there's ways to get around that. And I think that's what we aim to help people do. That's great. So you specialize in helping people career switch. What are some of the common themes that you come across with those that are looking to make changes? So I think some of the common themes around career switchers in particular are a lot of things are psychological. And as a licensed psychologist, I always kind of look at that side of it. And I think there's a lot of fear around change, any change. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of ambiguity around the process. So I think first and foremost, you have to be convinced that you can do it. And that's always the first question I ask switchers when I coach them. I'm like, if you got the job tomorrow, are you confident that you can do it? And if your answer is yes, then we just need to get over the hurdle of getting you in front of the decision maker and rebranding so they can see you as a good fit. But I also think another challenge which does kind of root itself in psychology is as this idea of identity, especially in the U.S. where our job title or profession is so interlaced with our identity that when you're looking to make a switch, it's really difficult to untangle yourself from that identity and recreate a new one. So you wind up having people say, I'm a lawyer, but I'd like to. And the second you say, I'm a lawyer, but you're basically just saying, I'm not what you want. (laughs) And you don't have to listen to anything else I say. So it's really about saying, okay, 
what transferable skills can you bring over from your time as an attorney, but not use these labels that automatically cause somebody to see you as something other than they want. So really helping people kind of shed that identity and see themselves more holistically as not one profession, not one title, but a series of transferable skills that bring value to the market. So you mentioned there are two things. You mentioned about the psychology. First, what about the psychology of the person looking at a resume or when they meet you? Because a lot of people really aren't trained. They don't understand how to hire either. And that's a whole other topic of conversation because I kind of feel that there's a really big issue on that side. No one's trained how to hire. I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people are. And a lot of people that I've come across aren't in my humble opinion, trained well. So that's one question. The other question, you mentioned something about like the psychology. What about, as I'm sure you're familiar with this, like there's some statistic that women are like significantly less likely to apply for a job if they don't feel that they are like a 10 out of 10 for the job. Whereas mm-hmm. men are, we're all over it. We, we think we can do everything. <laughs> like, I can type, I can send yeah. my resume. Yeah. No, yeah, so you're absolutely right. The The research is spot on exactly what you said. Women need, feel that they need to be 100% qualified, where men will apply if they're 60% qualified. And interestingly, further research has shown that most people who are hired are about 60% qualified. And the reason for that is because we know that a lot of those transferable skills or a lot of those quote-unquote soft skills like the ability to work in ambiguity or critical thinking or problem solving or communication are very meaningful and often supersede some of those technical things which anybody can learn on the job. So you're absolutely right with that. And then secondly, I love that you said this more than once, which is hiring managers are not trained to hire. And this is not a slight. The fact is, if your day job is not hiring and you do it two to three times a year, of course, this isn't something you're an expert at. But I usually ask my students, how many of you have hired? They all raise their hand. How many of you have been trained to hire at least six to eight hours? No one. And this is pretty typical. And I think as job seekers, we forget this and we think, okay, we have this thing about authority. If you're wearing a a doctor's uniform or whatever, you must know something. And so if you're in this position to hire me, you must have some knowledge about this. But the unfortunate part is many don't, which is why you get those questions. Hey, what animal would you be? Or what plant would you be? Which I'm sure everybody's gotten one of those, which are not valid. They don't mean anything. And they're just a hiring manager's way of kind of making you uncomfortable. But yes, hiring managers are not only not trained to interviews, so they're going to have a little bit of difficulty asking objective questions or valid questions. They also get better as they go. So if you're the the first person to get interviewed by the sixth or seventh, they might be really good at it. You may not get hired for the sheer fact that, (laughs) oh, I didn't ask that person those questions because I didn't think of them until candidate three or four. The other thing is they actually hate to hire. They, they don't want to spend their time hiring. And when I was a recruiter, I was a corporate recruiter, I couldn't get five seconds for a hiring manager to sign off on something or look at my list. They were so busy and they, like, they just want to get it done. And so I think when you know that, if you can come in and be the candidate of choice, that is going to really help you, but also help them. They want to get this over with and they don't need somebody who's a perfect match to the job. They need somebody who's going to make them look good, who can hit the ground running, is resourceful, and can figure it out. And if that's you, then show them that you're that person and be done with it and land the job. Now, 
But how do you show them? What are those tricks? And I guess before that, how do you get in front of them? Getting back mm-hmm. to those 250 to 400, you know, resumes that are getting submitted. Actually, we do know you really got to get in front of them through your networks. And we can talk about that a little later. But but are, are there any other strategies that you have or that you suggest people follow through on to help get them in front of the right people? I think if you're going to apply online, and I'm not saying completely abandon that, but I would say use it sparingly. And I'll tell you why, because a lot of the opportunities that are available don't make it to online. And if you think about it, I mean, I think about how you hire, Adam, if you had an open position, the first thing you're going to do is look at your network. You're not going to run to Indeed and pay a lot of money to throw it up there. It's just not going to be step one. So if you think about how people hire based on first off, hey, is there anybody I know? If not, is there anybody in my company that I've worked with or is anybody of people who I know who could recommend someone? And if not, then you're going to start to think about posting it. So first off, you have to think to yourself, what kind of jobs are getting out to the posting level? I mean, if it's a really killer job, chances are it's going to be sucked up pretty quickly in the early stages before it even gets there. But two, while they are posting and getting resumes, they probably have people networking in. So if you're going to apply online, definitely find someone in the company. It could be a friend of a friend, maybe somebody you used to work for. It doesn't matter if they're in the boardroom or the mailroom. It matters a little because I will say that if you get recommended by a director level or above, you have about a 90% shot of getting hired, which is huge. If you get recommended by any level employee, you have about a 60 plus chance of getting hired. So still pretty big bonus. Yeah, great odds, much better odds. But honestly, if the only person is somebody who is relatively new and works in a different department, that's okay too. The fact is that companies have employee referrals for a reason, programs for a reason. So get to know these people and find out, learn about the company, learn about how you can present yourself better when you do get the interview. I think these are all strategies that people are a little bit nervous to use. And if you absolutely don't have anyone, even if an ad says, don't call us, I think one of the greatest tools we have that we didn't have 20 years ago is LinkedIn and social media. I mean, it's really so much easier to find somebody or somebody who knows somebody using these tools. I mean, mathematically, we know it used to be six degrees of separation, and now it's about three, 3.2 degrees of separation. So we know the world is getting smaller in terms of connections. And yeah, it takes little work and it takes little time. But I think these are really going to open your opportunities up. So I know I went off on a networking tangent. No, no, no. <laughs> this is, you're talking my language, and, and I agree. And, and it's so interesting. So the 3.2 that you reference, by the way, I'm sure you know this, but in case you don't, that's based just off of actually Facebook. And what was interesting in the, on that study, it used to be, oh God, it was like 3.4 or 3.5. They did it three years later, and it was 3.2. And that's an exponential change. And now you're just talking about people that are just on Facebook. Think about how many people aren't even on there. So the number, I think the number is probably just under three. But to your point, it's, again, it's important to reach out to get to connected to one of those people. I had a question for you. When we spoke last week, you mentioned something that I thought was just so prolific and very fitting. You said, the economy is coming for you. 
<laughs> so you, ominous. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's here. Economy came for you. So yeah. can, can you elaborate on that, uh, on what you mean by that and what people should be doing? Yeah, and I do want that to sound a little bit frightening because the fact is, here's the deal. There are a lot of people who were wanting to make a switch over the last 10 years because they wanted to make a switch and they thought, this is, I'm ready to do something new with my life. But here, everybody's going to be a switcher soon. And that timeline has been like, somebody completely hit the fast forward button on the VCR. Now I'm showing my age, but it is like, it's been sped up to a point where we're not going back. And a lot of industries aren't going to survive this, or if they do, they're going to look and feel very different. There's going to be a host of new technologies, industries, markets, customers coming out of this. And I think it is a lot for companies to keep up with. And you're going to continue to see layoffs, furloughs, restructuring, mergers, acquisitions. And the last thing I would want for anybody is to be forced into a switch when you didn't see it coming, like I was 20 years ago with Arthur Anderson and Ron. That was, it turned out to be the greatest change of my career. And I don't regret a minute of it now, but at the time it was horrible. So I want everybody to get ahead of this and to start thinking, hey, where's my industry going? What skills are going to be most important? Am I happy where I am or be in this industry five more years? Can I really afford not to learn the new technologies or not to take the next step and maybe get that certification or what have you? Because a lot of people who maybe thought before that I'm happy enough and I can ride this out, your path may have changed in the last six months. And I don't want people to come out of this feeling like they're stuck because that's the worst feeling in the world. So the economy has changed. It's not going back. And now's a really good time to start paying attention to what your marketability is and where those gaps are so that you can start to proactively close the gaps. And I'd love to say the companies and organizations are ahead of this and they're thinking about it. And there are some that are reskilling or upskilling, but there are plenty who are not because they're just worried about survival. So this is on us. This is on our shoulders. No one's going to do it for us. I completely agree. That's a huge, you control your own destiny. What are your thoughts on having uh, coaches? I love coaches. I think I think anybody who can objectively help us look at ourselves differently, whether it's a career coach, a, an executive coach, a therapist, we all need that in our lives. And I think we are, some of us are fortunate to be surrounded by people we feel like we can talk to. But you have to ask yourself if those people are objective or if they're kind of pushing their own values on you, or they may not be able to ask you different questions because they've known you for so long. So I think the people closest to us can have the best intentions, but somebody who is one level away from us or maybe isn't as invested in our outcome as our spouse or our family can open our world to a variety of new things. Yeah, I agree. In terms of like managing expectations, I don't know if this statistic is still how valid this is. I'm dating something that I read probably over 10 years ago, but that there's a rule of thumb on how long it takes to get a new job. And I don't remember even if this was addressing switching careers. So I'm assuming it's, it's probably even longer from uh, when you switch careers. But the rule of thumb was it would take you roughly five weeks for every year that you were out of college. Meaning, so if you were 10 years removed from your degree, and I think it was just undergrad. So obviously it, it was it shrank if you had a master's or a PhD. But rule of thumb 
all over the country, five weeks for every year. So if you were out 10 years, it could take you about a year. Do you know if that statistic, how valid that statistic is? And if so, what are your, (laughs) I would say all rule of thumbs are gone. Like in the last six months, they've all been wiped up too. But to the point of that, I know what you're talking about. And I think it has to do with the higher level you are, the um, longer it's going to take. Because if you think about it, it's a pyramid. There are fewer jobs at higher levels. And we used to teach this when I worked in outplacement. Based on your level, we anticipate you need X level of weeks of coaching because this is how long it takes to get a job. But what I will say is that in this market, if you know exactly what you want to do, and I'm not saying, well, maybe this or maybe that, I'm talking exactly. If you're targeted, you need to give yourself four to six months And that could be long. And if it happens before that, great. It also, to your point, depends on if you're switching industries, if you're making a geography change, if you're moving into a very competitive industry. So a lot of our students at Wharton want to go into private equity and venture capitalists. That, I'm going to tell you, forget the six months. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. could take years just because there's so few jobs in it. So I think you have to look at industry. I think you have to look at what's being impacted now by the pandemic and how it's being impacted. If what area you live in, do you live in in a big city? Do you live in a smaller area? So there's so many factors that I think it's tough to put that rule of thumb out there and have it apply broadly. Yeah, good point. You said something that I thought was really important. You mentioned that is if somebody knows exactly what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, I feel like that is so important when you're looking for something because it's everyone's going to ask you, even when you're networking, well, what do you want to do? And there's a gentleman who was on my show before. He's got this awesome quote. He goes, uh, be easy to understand mm-hmm. and impossible to be misunderstood. So when you're, you know, again, looking for something, you need to be really specific. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or is it better to be wide open? No, I'm so glad you brought that up because I know this sounds really counterintuitive, but it's better to be specific. So to your other guest point, be easy to help is something I tell people all the time. You have to give your network the language to introduce you to somebody else. This is what I call being an ambassador. Going to somebody and not giving them that language basically incapacitates them to be able to help you because you'd say, hey, I know this great guy, Adam. Oh yeah, well, tell me about him. Well, I know he's got a podcast, or but if I say actually he's got a top 10 podcast on Apple with over... 3,000 five-star reviews and he tends to... I mean, now you're giving me the language I need to sell you. And so I think that's where people fall down is they come to you with, hey, I'm looking for an apartment. Okay, when? I don't know. Well, how many bedrooms? I don't know. I can't help you. You're asking me to do a lot more work than you're doing. And quite frankly... I'm not very confident in passing you along to my network and spending my social capital because you don't sound like you've invested the time in yourself to figure it out and to know what you want to do. So, you know, what if you change your mind? Now I'm spending my social capital on somebody who's sort of not ready to move to the next level. I completely agree. So now I'm going to take it back one step. How does somebody, especially we're talking about switchers, people that don't, they don't necessarily know what they want to do. How do they, any tips, tricks, strategies, books, radios, shows other than yours, <laughs> uh, podcasts <laughs> that you recommend somebody listen to help them dial in to identifying what it is that they should be doing? Because something that I've also noticed is that people are so stuck in their own echo chamber, they don't even mm-hmm. know what's out there. There are so many jobs out there that 
people really have no idea that even existed. So they don't know. So I'd love to get your perspective or ideas, suggestions on what they could be doing. And is that something that you've noticed also? Yeah, I will say I just published a blog on this on Forbes not too long ago, probably about two weeks ago, because honestly, I think this is the hardest part of the job search. I I think the title is it. Why is it so hard to narrow down what I want to do? And I'll tell you because one, there's so many different paths. So the traditional career path has basically been obliterated. There is no, this is what people traditionally do. People jump around a lot. So a lot of people used to go to that as a, well, these are the common paths. You don't have that anymore. There's also a lot of hybrid jobs. So what we've seen as technology emerges, we have FinTech is a great example. It used to be finance and tech. We have health tech. So a lot of jobs are looking for a combination of industries or skills. We also have a um, situation where there's now different ways to work. So you have portfolio careers and gigs and hustles and all these other things that people can lump together a lot of different skill sets. So the traditional paths back when I was in school and we learned all these career theories and stuff, I mean, a lot of those have been basically blown up because there is no typical. So I think first and foremost, you have to start with yourself. You have to say, what are my skills? What am I good at? What is my superpower? However you want to map that out and then map out everything you've done. I call it your who am I map. It's in my book, but it's what are all the things I've done? And I'm talking everything, volunteer, education, certifications. I think you first off have to step back and see yourself holistically. And then I think you need to look at the market and say, what does the market need? And one of the questions I love as a place to start is saying, what challenge do I want to solve in the world right now? And then matching those skills and your answer to that question, because the answer to that question is presumably a problem in the world. So I love that as a place versus what do I want to be or what do I want to do? Because that really limits you to a title or to a profession when in all reality, titles have just gotten crazy. Professions are all mishmashed up. So there's a couple of books. I like Kristen Sherry's book. I think it's called UMAP, which is great because she takes you through your values and your strengths and a bunch of other things. So that could be a really good place to start. If you're really new to careers and you're just starting out, ONET online is a great database. It's massive, so plan to spend a lot of time. But one of the reasons I like it is because if you really have no idea, it helps you break down roles into the knowledge you need, the education level you need, the skills you need, the outlook in the market. Does it have a bright future or not? Because those things are really important. I think you always have to look at what you're interested in, what you're good at, and what the market's going to pay for. And all three of those have to be there or it's going to be really difficult to move forward. Yeah, I completely agree. So let's assume you've done all this, you've been on ONET, you found the books, you're really dialed in. Now we know statistically, once you've got all these things taken care of, you've checked these boxes you need to really kind of leverage that network, that social capital that you're talking about. I'd love to kind of transition into this, unless you feel like there's anything else that I might, oh, there's so much I missed, but is there anything else that we could have touched on from the job side? Well, one thing you had asked me before, and I think I I sidetracked and got off on networking, but you had asked me what, once you're in front of the hiring manager, how do you convince them? Yes, 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 (laughs) thank you. So for those people who are like, is she ever going to answer that? 
No, you um, rescued me from my ADD. Yeah. Good looking out. Thank you for that. <laughs> I've also been at SiriusXM five years because yeah. I think you're going to answer that question too. Oh, um, wow, you're good. <laughs> that is impressive, Don. <laughs> but anyway, we're giving all the answers. Yeah. We don't have to wait to the end. Um, but yeah, for the hiring manager, I think one of the most important things is rebranding. And here's the deal. A lot of people go in and they talk about all their most impressive accomplishments with a hiring manager. Don't forget, these hiring managers are not trained. And also, they don't have time to pick through and see where you might fit. So I say, forget your most impressive accomplishments and pick your most relevant. Now, sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they're the same. But often they're not. And my mantra around this is match first, stand out second. What I mean by that is... The hiring process is about elimination, not selection. And I think that's an important thing for job seekers to recognize. Eliminate until we get down to the final two. And then maybe it's about selection. But when your mind is in elimination mode, it looks at things very differently than when it's in selection mode. So they're looking for reasons to cut you out of the process. So if you go in saying, I'm a lawyer, but (laughs) you're cut. But an example is I had a student who she had a PhD in chemistry and she was stellar getting her MBA and had a lot of business skills, but she rightfully so she's very proud of this PhD. So she'd start out as she's looking to transfer from the research side of this pharma company to the business side. She would start out with her PhD and it's right there front and center on her resume and she kept getting cut, cut, cut. And I said, look, I know this is going to be hard, but you have to take your PhD off the front and center of your resume. You can leave it on your education. There goes that tattoo. I know. Well, yeah, she didn't have one either. So this is a new business somebody can start. But she took it off and she started introducing herself with her business skills and the value that she had in that side of it. Strategy skills, her analysis skills, her quantitative skills, and And then people started paying attention to her because they started seeing her as a fit for what they're looking for. And the best part of this is that when she got down to the top two finalists and they said, well, what makes you unique? Why should I hire you over the other person? Then she got to pull out the, well, I'm also a PhD in chemistry and I really understand the research and development side of this role. And bam, she got the job because she matched first, stood out second. And I think that is one of the core things, whether you're a switcher or not, that we all have to do. We have to do the work for the hiring manager, not assume that they're going to see what's relevant. We have to put that stuff, the relevant stuff, right up front and center so that we make it to the end of the process. And then we can come out with the zingers of why we're so awesome and unique and all the other fun stuff we bring. I am so glad that you reminded me of that question because that advice, I think, is just on point. I can't stress enough of that. And that's a great quote too, by the way. And that belongs in your profile there. You match first, stand out second. That's gold. I, I say it a lot, but I will, I'm writing that down. I'm adding it to my profile. Nice, right there we after go. After this, <laughs> you will see it. <laughs> All right, good stuff. So I'd love to, to talk about the single biggest takeaway that you walked away from regarding your PhD dissertation, the impact of networking skills, training on job search behaviors. I thought that was awesome. I still want to read it, by the way. So please send that to me. And then I, <laughs> so uh, You'll be the third person. <laughs> all right. Well, I will read it. <laughs> so I'm curious to like what spawned that interest 
for you. And I'd love to hear what you got out of it. And then I'd love to then transition into about just networking in general and why it's so important for people and what they can be doing. So I know I just threw a ton of topics. I wrote them down myself. So you're not going to have to remind me. Okay. I will tell you, I know no one believes me when I say this, but I'm an off the charts introvert. So if you've ever taken the MBTI or the mm-hmm. NEO or any of those personality assessments, I'm an, I get my energy from being alone, which is awesome that I can do that mm-hmm. because that helped me write my book and write my articles and all those things. But I am not a natural networker. I am not the person to go to a large crowded event. And what I realized after getting laid off early in my career and realizing that it's not stellar performance that is going to be the total package that I have to build my network is that I need to find a way to do this comfortably because some of these strategies that people are telling me about don't work for me as an introvert. So my dissertation separated people into kind of the introvert, extrovert personality lines. And I did a training on different types of strategies to see which were more comfortable and were extroverts truly better at it than introverts. And some of the findings that I think were interesting were that, well, of course, extroverts were more comfortable networking, but after learning specific techniques, introverts got just as comfortable doing it when they they learned techniques that were comfortable for them. I also think that um, extroverts weren't necessarily better at networking because networking is about relationships. And just because you can kind of open the conversation doesn't necessarily mean that there's there's going to be a long-term relationship built. So I also think that once people know these strategies and they have different options to network, they're going to tend to do it more. So I think one of the important takeaways from that for me is that we each have to find what ways we're comfortable networking. For some, it might be online. For others, it might be large groups. For others, it might be one-on-one informational sessions. I mean, there's a number of different ways to do it, but I think you have to find what's comfortable for you so that you do it because this is how you're going to open doors. And it's not just for now. It's got to be for a lifetime because we know that Each of us changes jobs about every four to five years on average. That may catapult into two to three after the pandemic. We don't know, but chances are you're going to be in another job search. And if you want to have access to the most opportunities, you're going to find that within your network. So you touched on something that that I think was important. You said strategies. And that's really important because I think that a lot of people that are introverts, they don't realize, they just assume, oh, I'm an introvert, I can't be a good networker. So I guess they first need to understand what networking truly is. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to cocktail events. It doesn't mean that you're really working a room or or selling. That's like the antithesis of networking. It's just taking a proactive approach to building some relationships. So to your point about understanding this and learning some tools and some strategies, like some some questions, some good questions that you can ask and some the right type of follow-up, it's been my experience and it's been what I've come to read some of the network science that actually introverts are better networkers. They are typically more focused when having a conversation. They're less likely to be the ping pong at the room they're also more cognizant of the conversation. They usually are more reflective after the conversation, more likely to, besides just reflect on what was talked about, take notes or like write things down that were important to them and also follow up and follow through. So I'd be curious to, if that's something that you're agreeing with, 
And uh, if so, if you want, if you care to elaborate on that. So I do think I wouldn't go so far as to say extroverts or introverts are better, but I do think all of the strategies you just mentioned are strategies that tend to be characteristic of introverts. So extroverts may need to, while at the same time, introverts may have to force themselves to interact and ask questions and be curious. Extroverts have to force themselves to kind of let someone else talk and be reflective and write it down. So we all have to kind of encourage ourselves to take the next step and develop in those areas where we may not be as strong. But I think that's the important piece of this is that so many people out there say, oh, Don, I'm just not good at this. And it's not really a good or bad. I ask people, do you have friends? How do you develop those friends? How do you stay in touch? I mean, it's really a lot about having a conversation. And I say this in my TEDx talk that we already have a network. We all have friends, roommates, family, maybe classmates, workmates. So we all do have this system of people around us. So that's a great place for introverts to start is to get to the next level with some of those people. Ask a deeper question. Mm-hmm. Go go one level down beneath the surface than you have before because those shared experiences are going to be what help to build those connections. I think we all are in a really good time to do this now because the pandemic is something that even though it's impacting us all in in very different ways, it's something that is novel for all of us and can be a great conversation opener. How are you doing? How are you dealing with that? How is it in your city? What's changed for you? This is, if you're not really great at that small talk, these are some easy topics to open the door and create those back and forth dialogues that can help you get a deeper level of connection with someone. I completely agree. And it's the small talk that's actually the big talk. And uh, I can't stress that enough. I train people. I just tell them to have like one or two or ideally like three, you know, like conversation starters that are a little deeper. Or if it's possible, when you're at least first engaging with someone to get some type of emotion, ideally laughter. (laughs) Yes. So uh, there's a question (laughs) I recommend that people, because again, it's the whole Maya Angelou. It's not what you, it's not what you say. It's how you make people feel. And if you yep. can get something to make someone, you know, put a smile on their face, they're going to remember that. And that's a release of oxytocin too. So I'll recommend to people when they're first meeting somebody is ask them, what was the last thing that made them laugh? That's great. It's great. You, you, I will guarantee you when you are in front of someone in person, when you're allowed to do that, you ask that question, you will see they physically will smile just thinking about it. Just, just be cognizant of that. Ask somebody, what was the last time to me? Or when did you last laugh? They're just, you're, you'll watch it. It's, it's like you're watching their brain happening like right in front of you. And then, then you get a good inside peek at who someone really is. And you find humor. And especially if you can find something in common and you can go from there, that uh, you're, off, you're off to the races. Where do you see most people go wrong when it comes to quote unquote networking? I think it is pairing it with a job search. And this has been a something for years people have tended to do. I need to learn to network because I, I need to find a new job. And if that's your philosophy, I can tell you're almost always doing it wrong <laughs> because yep. it's not an activity that is necessarily paired with selling or getting more customers or getting job offers. Those can be great side effects and great benefits of it. 
for both people involved. But if that's kind of how you pair networking, then you probably need to step back and reevaluate how you approach it. And I love your comment about the emotion too. I think that piece is something that others miss. One of, I had Amy Cuddy on my show a few weeks ago, and she talks about something that I think is phenomenal. This idea of two things people always evaluate when they meet someone new, trust and competence. And if they don't trust you, then they don't care about your competence. So she said, most of the time people get it wrong. They introduce themselves with an elevator pitch and I'm so good at this and I have this degree and that degree. And all of a sudden, I mean, I don't even know you yet. And so she equates it to, you don't want somebody coming into your tribe and maybe they're a great hunter, but <laughs> they, they steal all of your food while you're not looking. So it's this idea of we have it backwards. We have to start with getting to know somebody, being curious, building that warmth and and trust or likability. And then we can get into the business side of things. And I, I think that was a great takeaway from her research is that don't just dive in with all of these. Here's all my qualifications because there's lots of great quotes around this, but I like people don't care what you, until they know that you care. That is not my quote, but it's but it's one that comes to mind talking about this. It's, it's so true. It is so true. Trust is the holy grail. If someone knows you, yeah, they'll meet with you. If they like you, they'll spend time with you. But if they trust you, they'll do business with you. They'll hire you and they'll do the most important thing. And that's put their name behind you. And you get someone to say or to blow your horn and the sound travels twice as far. And it, it's just so true. So what can people do? Because this is what happens. They lose their job or they're looking and they're like, oh, like you said, I need to network. And then, but then they're like, oh, they burn out because they call a couple people. And obviously they haven't, they didn't dig their well before they're thirsty. And then what happens is they get burnt out because they're like, oh, I, nobody, oh, my network is terrible or these people are terrible. Any suggestions on the people that really do have poor networks? Do they come right out and tell people, hey, I'm really sorry that we haven't connected in the past. I am in a position where I need something or what, what do you recommend they do? Yeah, I think the first step is start with the people. And this is really the whole basis for my TEDx is that we have this network that has no idea what we do day to day. And I will challenge listeners to ask people who are closest to you to say in one to two lines, one to two sentences, what you do, what value you add to your market. And I'm not talking about you work at, at this company or you have, you're a lawyer or you're, you work in tech. I'm talking about very spe specifically saying, this is who your audience is and this is how you add value. And I will bet you pretty much the people you spend time with all the time can't say that. Mm -hmm. They can't share that. And if the people who care about you most, who want to see you succeed cannot be an ambassador for you. They can't be out there listening for information to bring back to you that's helpful. They can't be out there saying, hey, I know somebody who works at that company or my, my colleague spouse works at that company. Then you are missing a huge opportunity to network because we rarely have these conversations with the people we see every day, our neighbors or the soccer parents on the sidelines. We talk about you know, general things, the neighborhood, the weather, maybe you say, where do you work, but you never get into it. I think if you say, hey, I really don't know too much about what you do at work. Can you share that with me? And then they reciprocate. Now, all of a sudden, at the end of that conversation, you're thinking of people to introduce them to, or you see a job ad the next day and you're like, oh, this would be perfect. I just talked to so-and-so yesterday about that. But we have to first and foremost, 
make sure the people who care about us most and who are already in our trust circle know what we need and what we want because they have tons of people in their circles that we may not know about as well. So I think that's definitely step one. And I think if you are going to reach out to people because you're in a difficult situation and you need a job, I think honesty is the best policy and and sincerity. So people are going to know you're reaching out for a job. I don't think you have to kind of sugarcoat it. And I think one of the benefits we have right now is everybody's struggling with something. It could be they have three kids at home. They're trying to, to online school. It could be that they're taking care of somebody ill in their family. It could be that they are struggling at work because they've been given all this extra work, but everybody's kind of in a position where they are sympathetic and can use help. And so somebody may not be able to help you, but the more specific you are and the less work you put on them, the more likely you're going to get help. So if somebody reaches out to me and says, Hey, here are 10 companies I'm interested. Do you know anybody? Well, that's going to take a lot of time for me. Versus if somebody looks at my LinkedIn and says, hey, Don, we haven't talked in a while. I'm kind of in a tough position. Uh, I see you're connected to so-and-so. Do you feel comfortable giving me an introduction? I understand if you don't. I mean, you're going to get a better response from that, being open, honest, doing the work for me, making it easy. And if all it is about me saying, oh, yeah, I can make that introduction. It'll take me two minutes easy to do, and maybe would open a door for you. So I think you have to be really thoughtful. Don't go sending out email blasts to all of your friends. That's typically something that I've actually have seen it work in this environment because people, like I said, know everybody's in a struggle, but typically you're going to get better traction when you focus individually on somebody, ask them for something very specific and something very unique to what they're capable of doing. Yeah, I completely agree with every single word of what you just said. And it just reminded me, it was really interesting. There was a gentleman that reached out to me and was kind of asked me, hey, can you help me get a job? And it was just like that. And he put the whole onus on me. And I was mm-hmm. like, sure, I'd be happy to. But again, having to spend what I thought was going to be a couple minute conversation ended up being an hour and a half. And we just scratched the surface. So then he's like, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm so disappointed in my, my networks. They haven't done anything for me. And I said, ooh, where are my network? And I'm like, well, I go, first of all, what have you done for them? And he couldn't really come up with anything. And then he decided to post on LinkedIn how disappointed he was (laughs) with his network. (laughs) Yes. And that he's looking for a job and he challenged his networks on LinkedIn to find him a job. True story. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll point this to you when we're offline because I do not want to put this person in a, in a situation. But I'm thinking in uh, Job Searching 101, everything that he did was what you do not do. Yeah, that last one especially. But I think you bring up another good point, Adam, though, which is a lot of people are having a really hard time now. Either they've been laid off unexpectedly or they're struggling to pay their bills or they're worried about getting sick. There's so many things to worry about. But if you are in a bad place, if you're in a negative place, I think you have to address that. And I think that, again, putting my psychologist hat on for a second, not something to be embarrassed about, not something to be ashamed of, but something that can certainly negatively impact your job search, not just with your network, but certainly on interviews and everything else. So you'll be doing yourself a favor if you sort of take a break, address that, and then then get back to the job search. So agree. I completely agree with that. 
Dawn, is there someone or a story that you have that you could share about someone that has transitioned or is looking to transition? Yeah, switchers are my favorite population to work with. And I think a lot of people who are thinking this might be a great time to make a switch or unfortunately being forced to make a switch may see that as a huge hurdle and say, wow, it's so far away. But one of the things I, I want to encourage people to think about is is a bridge job or a stepping stone path. So I, I worked with an individual who was a corporate lawyer and wanted to be an HR in a tech company and was kind of hitting the wall, not able to get anybody to see her differently. So what she ended up doing is within her current company, she made a functional switch into a comp and benefits role. And then after two years in that role, she made a switch into the HR tech company because she now had that HR background. So one of the things I want to encourage people is to look at a variety of options. And one thing that people tend to do in a recession or think about when making a career change is to go back to school. And I want to encourage people not to do that as a first step. And here's why. It, it, it's costly. It's time consuming. Right now, it's probably going to be online. And you may not get as many of the networking benefits that I think are one of the best things about attending a program. So here's the thing. If you're thinking about making a switch and you're in a field that absolutely requires a degree, medicine or something, then that's one thing. But if you're not, what I encourage you to do before that is ask yourself if you can get there another way through your network, through building your own kind of self internships and creating situations where you can maybe do some volunteer work with nonprofits or other organizations that may be struggling right now. Because I can pretty much tell you that there are very few positions that are actually going to require a degree. It might be a nice to have, but even if you spend those two years or however long getting that graduate degree or whatever, you are still going to have a hard job search at the other side of it. So do think long and hard if that's the only path. And before you kind of dive in with both feet, I know it's linear, it's specific, it's laid out for you and humans hate ambiguity, but I have seen plenty of people through their network, through creating a side hustle or some kind of portfolio career, create that path to where they want to be. So do look at it from a lot of different angles. And this is, Adam, where a coach can really be yeah. a valuable asset. Yeah, I agree. My God, I, I'm always looking to try to like find some kind of, you know, play devil's advocate, but all, I agree with everything you've been saying. It's been really, it's been really good. We're kind of winding down. I just looked at the clock. So if, if you would be kind enough, I got a couple more questions. Sure. Time? All right. Awesome. Yeah. Would you mind sharing some of the best advice that someone's ever given you? So one of the guests that I had on my radio show, Carla Harris, uh, who's a manager director at Morgan Stanley, and she's written two great books, Strategize to Win and Expect to Win. She said something on my radio show that was so profound and it makes so much sense, but I have to repeat it. She said, most of the decisions that are made about your career are made when you're not in the room. And it was like, whoa. And this relates back to why 
having stellar skill set and, and doing exceptional work isn't enough if you're not building your brand, your visibility, and your network. Because it's so true. You could be a great performer in your organization, but when your, your company is going through a merger or getting a new big client or new big project or making strategic changes, they're in the room, the executives are in the room thinking about who they want to lead these things. And if they don't know about you, then you're not being considered. And by the time you learn about that opportunity, they could have already have three people in line for it. So I think this is just such a, a great reason why networking and branding are so critical, even if you're not out looking for a job, as we've talked about this whole time, why it's so critical to your career throughout your life. Yeah, that is great. There are so many good quotes that are coming out of this, by the way. I'm loving it. I know. It. We should do a whole show on just quotes. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I've thought about doing that. I've actually thought about just getting, no, I'm serious. Like I've really thought about getting just some elite people like yourself and just throwing out random quotes and asking what they mean to you and to like elaborate. So I like <clears> it. Maybe we'll do this. So I'm going to ask you, you're going to have to come back then. I want it on recording. I'd be honored. All right. Good stuff. All right. Here. One of the favorite parts that I get on the show feedback from guests is this random. I've got like all these like random questions that I've got written out that I'd love if I had all the time in the world. I'd love to ask each and every one of you or each and every one of them for you. But we don't have all the time in the world. So I've got them broken down into categories. This one, the first category is in networking questions and the numbers between one and 12. I'd love for you to pick a number and I'll ask you that question. How's that sound? Okay. Seven. Why seven? (laughs) <laughs> it's the first thing that popped into my head. Okay. All right. That's fair. All right. Number seven. How has your life turned out different than you'd anticipated or expected it to have been at this point? Well, let's add pandemic here. But if we're not talking about the pandemic, I would go back to my story that I relayed earlier. I thought I'd be at Arthur Anderson my entire career. I was moving up. I was happy there. I totally made a complete and wonderful shift after getting laid off. And I think one of the lessons I've taken from that is that we all have to be open to those career detours. And I think career detours, whether it's a layoff or an opportunity you didn't expect, or maybe you didn't get the promotion, but something else comes, I think we have to be ready for those because I'm a true believer that the universe gives us opportunities. And if we just pay attention will always be on the right path. Yes, very much so. Okay, number 17 to 59, give me a number. Oh, wow. All right, 46. 46. What's your favorite day of the week? Ooh, I'm going to say Saturday. Saturday, any reason? Well, I work Tuesday through Saturday, so it's actually a work day for me because our executives are in Friday, Saturday. But I know a lot of people would say Friday is their favorite day. So my Friday is Saturday. It's kind of that I get the rest of the weekend, my two days, Sunday, Monday, all to do what I want to do. So. Nice. Well, the mantra of NetworkWise is every day is Friday at NetworkWise. Oh, I love it. <laughs> all right. Number one through 14. 13. All right. 13. What do people know about you? that you probably don't know about you? It's a self-awareness question. Oh gosh, I journal and meditate a lot. So what do people know about me that I probably don't know about me? Yeah, it's a tough I'm one. Pretty, yeah, it is a tough one. I'm, I did ask for it. 13 is no longer my lucky number. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a real tough one because it's a, 
Do you know who Dr. Tasha Ehrlich? I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. She did this whole thing on self-awareness. She's got, you can go to her website and she offers a lot of stuff for free for those that are, that are listening. And, and she's, I think she, when it comes to self-awareness, she's like a, a foremost thought leader in this space. And those who think that they're aware are more likely than not the least aware. And those that think that they're the least aware are typically the most self-aware. And this self-awareness, I think, and also getting back to a job search is, I think it's important. And I'm not saying that you're not self-aware. <laughs> I think that's what you said, but no. that's okay. <laughs> no, but I think it's a, just a good point for other people just in general. And it's, so again, most a lot of people are an open book, but sometimes there are things that I used to think I was funny until my wife told me I'm not. <laughs> so that was, if that question was asked to me, that would have been the, that would have been my answer. See, that, this is an interesting one because it's, it's kind of the impossible question. You can't really answer it until somebody tells you the answer. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Forget my question. <laughs> I'm going to ask somebody else that, though. What, what do you know about me that I don't know about me? And I'm going to get at least two people to answer that question. All right. So, again, that will be in our follow-up. I, Dawn, I knew that you would deliver. No, I knew no pressure, but this was a great conversation. I got a ton of takeaways, a lot of good quotes, I mean, this is someone that at every phase of their career, they could listen to this conversation and walk away with so many things. So I really hope those that had the opportunity to hear us today take to heart all these pearls of wisdom that you were kind enough to share with us. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Adam, for having me. I had a blast. I am so happy that you reached out and I look forward to our next opportunity to collaborate. And it's happening. (laughs) 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 all right make it a great day thanks for listening to conversations with connors a network wise podcast if you or someone you know is looking for a career change building a business seeking to expand sales or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community those who are ambitious will network The ones who succeed will network wise.